The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on, rinse and repeat. We have an opportunity to become Europe's Silicon Valley. We can perhaps be a broker of some sort with Ukraine. We expect inflation to come off quite rapidly in the rest of this year. Obviously, we want to see that happen. What we now need is a period of stable, quiet, serious government. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. This is a time of year when, as Parliament is in recess, we have a lot of big thoughts floating around and big plans being made without sort of looming deadlines. Um, It's also time you might be perhaps tempted to take on a big project uh, and maybe something like a home renovation, for example, could be interesting. Uh, Something that has made us be thinking a little bit about planning, though, and perhaps some big changes down the line is a looming deadline around a big building project in London. Yeah, absolutely. It's not my home renovation, Stephen. Um, (laughs) Chateau Hepker is getting an upgrade. I wish. Um, China has spent five years trying to get planning permission for a new embassy uh, in London. And the deadline for the sort of final, final, final uh, decision on this is the 11th of August this week. So I think it's quite interesting that if you haven't been watching this, I mean, you may know that the embassy uh, is in central London. It's Mm. uh, like Portland Place. Beijing has bought this building and it wants to build the biggest European embassy at the Royal Mint or the Royal Mint Court. Uh, 255 million pounds is what China spent in 2018 for it. But it has spent, essentially, since then, it has been sort of locked in this battle with the local council over planning, uh, which it has not got, and I'm not sure that it will get. Yeah, and of course, we're going to find out the answers to that in the next couple of days. But it's really interesting, given the conversations we've been having this week about the UK's approach to its relationship with China. We talked to Vince Cable on the show yesterday about, mm. you know, after we had those comments from that HSBC executive about, is the UK weak on China? Are they following the US position too much? And of course, always when it comes to issues around things like big government buildings like yes. embassies being built in central London. There's always the question of the bigger political issues and the bigger relationship that the UK has with these countries uh, and how exactly that fits in with the very perhaps mundane and local planning issues as well. Well, yes and no. I mean, it highlights the Conservative Party fissure, doesn't it, on the issue of China. We know that, that the Prime Minister uh, seems to be more open to the sort of business and the, and the significant diplomatic ties you know, between the UK and China than perhaps some other Conservatives hawks are anyway. Yeah, indeed, definitely a story to watch. But speaking of another perhaps local or mundane issue that became a subject of national debate, we're still talking about Greater London's ultra low emissions zone or ULES. The mayor's been out again defending the policy in interviews this week. It's, of course, been in the national conversation since the Uxbridge by election, seen as being the issue that helped the Conservatives to hold on to their seat there. But new research by disinformation specialist Valent Projects has found that what they say, what they say is a concerted online campaign against you, Les, that's employed thousands of fake Twitter accounts. Joining us now to discuss as Chief Technology Officer of Valent Projects, Fergus Mackenzie-Wilson. Fergus, great to have you with us on the programme. Tell us about your research. What did you find out about this campaign around the issue of you, Les? Um, thank you. Thank you. So but essentially what we found um, is 
I wouldn't say I, I wouldn't say um, a targeted um, effort to create narratives. It's more one to reinforce narratives, if that makes sense. Um, so there were a lot of angry people out there already. Um, that, that didn't like the ULES policy because it was affecting them in certain ways. Um, but um, what effectively the disinformation actors have done is they've poured a whole lot of fuel on the fire and they've made sure that those angry people and their narratives um, reach far and wide and, um, and, and, and it spread it a lot further than it would have organically, essentially. Okay. So, I mean, just a reminder, obviously, ULES is this, if your vehicle doesn't pass a certain emission threshold, you have to pay £12.50 to go into the zone. And the mayor expanded the zone so that it's most of London. So it did become quite a, um, well, it is uh, an issue for some motorists and voters. Would you class then what you have found as misinformation, disinformation, propaganda, amplification there are all of these buzzwords now that i hear you know around social media and the spread of information how would you categorize it um well d d disinformation is effectively uh, uh, we, we treat it as um you know an, any um any inauthentic presentation of information or um, any, you know, it could be a complete conspiracy theory, for example. Um, but in this case, because the, the information is being spread by inauthentic actors, um, this is still very much a disinformation campaign. Talk us through the scale of what you found as well. How widespread was this information being spread and what sort of people did it reach, do we know? Uh, we didn't investigate reach, so this is very much... Um, uh, sort of a, a skin skin deep investigation. Uh, we didn't go too far because it was an unfunded internal project purely for development purposes. We're developing autonomous systems um, to to detect and monitor these kind of operations in house. And this was just basically an experiment that we thought we put on Twitter because it was interesting. Um, but the um, yeah, it, it's um, it, it's it's very it's very much a case of uh, it, it you know. You know, it will reach whoever they're targeting, if that makes sense. So we, we quite often find like um, uh, accounts that will promote uh, climate change denial, um, then also uh, football, um, then also uh, conspiracy theories like American conspiracy theories, the classic ones like anti-vax stuff. Um, and it seems to all kind of um, be be linked together. But likewise, mm -hmm. we also see like single issue um, sing single issue promoters where they're only focusing on climate change denial um, mm -hmm. and all kinds of related stuff like that. And some of it was purely political, where they were just attacking sort of um, uh, the mayor effectively, and they're attacking the mayor any way they could. Um, and then ULES was part of that, if that makes sense. So there's a mm -hmm. variety of different actors that we saw, um, all with different shapes and flavors. Okay, who do you think might be behind it then? Is that something that you looked at? And if not, why not? What what else was the point of 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 doing that sort of investigation? Do you think? Um, we we haven't so so effectively uh, determining who's who's behind it and doing an attribution investigation. That is mm -hmm. something that we could do, um, but it would take a long time. It would be very expensive, and so far the project's been unfunded. Just something we've done out of interest in house um, because we live in London. So we thought hmm, that's an interesting one to look at. Um, but it's, uh, it, I wouldn't say it's one single actor from what we've seen, um, it, or it, well, it's pretend, it could be one single actor, a very advanced actor. Um, but the main reason we looked into that is because it's the most um, advanced uh, disinformation campaign we've seen, to the point where initially 
we looked at it and we thought, no, this is this is just a bunch of angry people. This is completely legitimate. Um, but then once we dug really deep into the data, then we started to see, oh, actually, there's patterns here. Oh, actually, um, this is very impressive. Um, you know, the engineers who are behind this, um, you know, if it's one engineer or multiple engineers, it's difficult entirely to say. There's definitely at least one sort of agency body that we've seen evidence of. Um, but it's, um, yeah, it was a great use case to effectively um, test our software solutions on. What exactly do you mean by an agency body? Oh, so um, there are a lot of uh, disinformation actors that um, aren't really politically motivated or motivated in any way other than financially. Um, and they effectively like lease out their services um, to, um, you know, what we call threat actors, people trying to do something, you know, shady. Um, so, for example, you know, a- Amazon at the moment is investing significant resources to tackle um, fake review brokers. So people who sell fake reviews to sellers, whether it's good reviews to boost their own products or bad reviews to harm their competitors. Um, you know, these these actors are out there. Um, mm. And the, the Guardian published uh, an investigation into uh, what they call Team Jorge, where they were operating like 30,000, 40,000 Twitter accounts at once um, to spin narratives for uh um, you know, for political influence purposes. Um, and, you know, they're just, all they're doing is just charging threat actors hard cash for, for you know, for, for these operations. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, these actors do exist out there. And the fact, the level of technical sophistication it takes um, to, to pull off something like this is very high. And thus the engineers are very expensive. Uh, and, you know, that's that's pretty much, it, it's spawned mm-hmm. an industry and a business model. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how, it, so... <laughs> all of these influence campaigns and it's sounding like it's becoming more sophisticated, more complicated, more expensive and more difficult, frankly, for everybody else to understand and get to grips with. Do you think this is important as we head into another general election here in the UK next year? Um, I mean, it will definitely have it will definitely have an effect. So there's two things going on at the same time. Uh, one, the number of of what we call, you know, uh, bots and fake accounts is all it's all increasing. Um, so last year, uh, Facebook has two point, uh, just over 2 billion users right now, at daily active users. Last year, they shut down 5.8 billion fake accounts. So more than twice their number of daily active users they had to shut down in fake accounts. And those are the ones that were detected and actually shut down and deleted. Um, Imperva um, releases a report every year um, uh, commenting on the number of... Uh, or the proportion of traffic that's made up from bots on the internet, we're currently at 47%. And that's that increases year after year after year. So already half the internet traffic comes from bots. Um, and you know, you have more more bots being more bot accounts being shut down every year than there are actual users, um, if that makes sense. So that's scale, scale was increasing, we're going up, we're going up. But at the same time, the content they can put out, suddenly, We've got these great tools now to automate um, highly authentic looking content. For mm-hmm. example, ChatGPT, which most people are familiar with. Um, but you can actually build large language models like that into larger um, pipelines if you're a software engineer. So you know you can have your uh, large like bot control network, and then you feed a bunch of content into it. Instead of posting the same content across your entire network, you can have like variations of it, so it looks more organic. So there's a lot of diversity in there, but it's all still pushing the same narrative. Um, so suddenly, all these things are possible if you're an engineer, um, and it's uh, yeah, it's a, becoming a bit of a scary reality. Fergus, if we're to think about how we can 
track or perhaps even stop these sorts of campaigns from influencing the next election. You mentioned uh, the cost involved of carrying out an investigation like this. How much would it cost to to properly identify the actors behind a campaign like the one that you saw around you, Les? How much would it cost? Um, well, it, it, it depends. Um, it, it depends how how far away they're hiding, how deep they're hiding, and behind how many, um, you know, how many layers of obfuscation they're hiding. If they're hiding behind an agency, it's very difficult. You know, it would take a, a consortium, effectively, um, to, to do, like, track the financial flows uh, and, and so on. Um, I think it would probably be, probably be possible between two and three months. Okay. Fergus, thank you so much for your time. Fergus Mackenzie Wilson, their Chief Technology Officer of Valent Projects, joining us. Well, our next guest has a new book out on how persuasion and propaganda is everywhere and how to arm ourselves against it in today's information battlefield. The book's called Free Your Mind, The New World of Manipulation and How to Avoid It. It's by the behavioural scientist Patrick Fagan, formerly lead psychologist at Cambridge Analytica and by his colleague journalist Laura Dodsworth. Previously, she's written uh, the book A State of Fear on the weaponisation of the COVID-19 pandemic. And Patrick Fagan joins us now. Good morning. Morning. Patrick, great to have you with us on the programme. As I was reading through the book, uh, it sort of gave me chills. It was a reminder of how uh, on a Saturday I tried to take the screen away from my five-year-old before he goes ballistic. And the whole point of your book seems to be take the screen away, move away from the smartphone, TV, iPad in order to free your mind. Is the only answer abstinence? Uh, absolutely not, no. And we recognise that it's not really possible just to extract yourself entirely from the screen-based world. But what you can do is kind of use a nudge on yourself. So there's a nudge called the foot-in-the-door technique where you're more likely to uh, do a larger request if you agree to a smaller request first. So it's not about completely getting rid of the screen, uh, although you know, I would recommend that, although I'm not able to do it myself even, but just making small gradual changes. So using them a bit less um, and using them a bit more mindfully. So for example, with TV, if you watch it in the evening, uh, your conscious defenses are down a bit then because you're more tired, uh, maybe stressed. And so the messages from the TV are more likely to seep into your subconscious. Uh, But to your question, no, there's many other things you can do besides just cutting down your exposure to this kind of content, Uh, like, for example, uh, getting immunity. So if you learn to recognize manipulation techniques uh, by reading the book, for example, you're less likely to fall for them. Uh, But there's many other of these kind of tactics. So you don't have to completely get rid of the screens. But we did interview a magician for the book and I asked him how can you not get tricked by a magician and his answer was very simple he said don't go to the show Right. I mean, look, we're talking to you in the context of our our politics show because we're interested in how topics like misinformation and disinformation are influencing political conversations. What are the sorts of tools that you talk about in your book that allow us to protect ourselves from being manipulated by by those who want to influence us? So, as I said, one of them is obviously reducing your your contact or exposure using these uh, screens and information sources more mindfully. Also looking out for the techniques, Um, for example, if you read psychology 
uh, books, um, you will know that there are certain influence tactics that can be used on you. For example, if you go onto a, a hotel website, they'll tell you that the hotel you're looking at has been looked at by 10 other people today and there's only one room left and they're using social proof and scarcity um, to get you to buy it. And misinformation, disinformation, propaganda, they use similar techniques by, for example, making you think that a particular course of action is very popular. There's a saying that the purpose of propaganda is not to change what you think, but to change what you think other people think. So social norms are a very important tool uh, in, in propaganda and, and misinformation. Um, likewise, uh, polarization, um, mm. making you think that there's an enemy and that they have extreme views. Uh, there's all these kind of techniques, but once you are able to look out for them, you're less likely to, to fall for them. Your book's such a great read. Um, there's a lot of history in it, um, a lot of sources cited. You know, you talk about propaganda being as old as democracy, about all the different techniques, um, you know, from the mild, you know, getting you to buy cereal to the, frankly, pretty horrifying. Do you actually think that misinformation and disinformation are on the rise? We're all aware now, um, you know, around uh, big um, elections that, that this has been a concern for some years now. But do you think that it actually is more extreme now than it has been in, in previous periods in history? Well, all communication is designed to influence people. So propaganda and persuasion are very old. They're as old as communication. Even these words I'm putting together in a particular order to, to influence what's on people's minds, even this conversation is a kind of uh, propaganda. Uh, propaganda meaning to propagate an idea. That's where it comes from. Um, and Edward Bernays, who was the one of the founders, really, of propaganda and marketing and PR, he said the only difference between propaganda and education is whether you support it or not. So sometimes, not all the time, obviously, but when we're talking about misinformation and disinformation, um, what that actually is, what counts as misinformation, can differ very radically between the two um, uh, kind of bubbles that people live in, uh, their perceptions of reality. So I think what's happening at the minute is this extreme polarization uh, where there's these separate bubbles of reality emerging um, and they're kind of coming into contact and clashing. Um, and obviously now we have technology, we're bombarded with information, whether real or otherwise, um, almost 24 hours a day. And that's to say nothing of these advances in things like Apple's Visual Pro headset, which will plug people into screens all day, every day, uh, AI and algorithmic nudging, uh, the metaverse similarly. Um, so we're heading into a world where the, the opportunity for persuasion, deceptive and otherwise, is, is enormous. So I think it's never been more important to kind of learn how to protect yourself. Patrick, many people will see you as having been part of the problem from when you worked at Cambridge Analytica, being paid to influence people. What did you learn from that experience? Um, well, it's very interesting because there is a bit of even misinformation around Cambridge Analytica. It was, I mean, obviously I'm biased, but it was basically a kind of digital marketing company. And yes, okay, it did some uh, shady stuff. Uh, not that I was involved in that, full disclosure, um, but uh, uh, just to be clear, but um, really the techniques, they were still used by other companies and they're still used to this day. It's really just targeted uh, advertising. 
So that was actually kind of a meta lesson for me about, about these, these news narratives that can kind of take hold. Um, but I also learned the, I suppose, the cookbook for how to create nudges and messages that resonate with different groups of people uh, on a more personal level um, and just how persuadable people can be and how powerful this, this algorithmic nudging, this targeted advertising can be. Yeah, I mean, you've sort of said it there, though, you know, defining, uh, you know, what constitutes information, disinformation, propaganda is so difficult, uh, you know, because it, I suppose in some senses it depends on your world perspective. It's immensely difficult then to deal with it. So, you know, if you look at the kind of abstinence versus regulation um, uh, spectrum, I suppose, how do we deal with it? And particularly, I'm thinking, coming into another general election here in the UK, not not so um, long away, and we've just had a number of by-elections too, how do you think we need to deal with regulation specifically in the political environment? Mm, I, it's obviously a very tricky question. Um, I'm a bit of a, I suppose, free speech absolutist and believe in the wisdom of crowds, ultimately, that if you give people uh, freedom to share information um, and, and to read information, yes, we will make a lot of mistakes and it will be very messy and noisy along the way. But in the end, I think people work things out for the best when you leave these very complex networks to uh, interact with one another, they kind of um, come to the truth, but it can be very messy and noisy along the way. But to I your point, you... to, to your point about about abstinence being a, a helpful tool to step back from these information, if we think about the, the moratorium that's placed on broadcasters coming up to elections where there can be no discussion of election for a period while polls are open, should we be applying the same thing to social media companies and platforms on those subjects too, to nudge people towards that abstinence? Um, well, I don't think there needs to be uh, abstinence per se, but there's a chapter in the book called Get It in Writing, which is about uh, how the medium is the message and it's about how you consume information that can um, make you more or less vulnerable to manipulation. So if you read information or indeed like listen to it through a podcast or, or a radio or something, um, it gives you more time to digest the information. You can engage with it on a more rational level. If you see it in an image or in particular a video, uh, it engages you emotionally. Uh, images go through what's called pre-attentive pathways, meaning the image will affect you and have a psychological impact before you're even consciously aware of what you're looking at. So something like TikTok, to a lesser extent, Instagram, um, that is potentially quite dangerous or, or, or powerful when it comes to manipulation. So if there were to be some kind of abstinence, uh, it would probably be in those video and image-based uh, media, um, at least it's not about abstinence from information, perhaps, but more moving to other kinds of information with which you can um, interact more rationally. Yeah, I, I think it's so interesting, your perspective on this. What do you think is the most difficult um, in terms of political messages to resist? Because I'll take this one little quote that I did find interesting from the start of your book. We have found ourselves troubled by the deliberate persuasion of the masses, eerily evocative of the past. And so you sort of talk about why it's important to think about um, you know, influence uh, in the current state of politics in the world. So what's the 
most irresistible mm. technique when it comes to politics is probably um well there are two very key elements to persuasion that people like to be liked and they like to be right and i see these levers being pulled a lot in political um, messaging but it's really this kind of in-group uh, us versus them kind of messaging when really we're all in the same team um but anything that really pushes these emotional hot buttons um if there's any emotion words if there's visual metaphors uh and if there's um this feeling like your your values or your lifestyle are under attack that seems to be the most powerful message or at least it's used the most um so i would assume it's the most powerful Patrick, thank you so much for your time. Very interesting to speak to you and to uh, read your book, Free Your Mind, The New World of Manipulation, How to Avoid It, the behavioural scientist Patrick Fagan. The government is this week focusing its efforts on its migration policies, but a new poll from YouGov shows what a hill they have to climb to win over the public. Only 9% of voters have confidence the Prime Minister will cut the number of asylum seekers crossing the channel on small boats. Among Tory voters, it's still only 15%. YouGov's Associate Director Patrick English joins us now for more details. Patrick, great to have you with us. 9% is a pretty low base to be trying to build from. This doesn't look good for the government, uh, at least the confidence the public has and the government fulfilling this pledge. Hello, yes, that's exactly right. So the numbers that we're seeing right now make for terrible reading for the government if they're looking for any signs from the public that they have faith or they believe that their plan on the issue of immigration and asylum, specifically those small boats, is going to come to fruition. Now, of course, this 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 nine percent of people who are confident that this will be successful, that includes only 15% of people who voted Conservative in 2019. 80% of those who backed the party currently in government just those years ago think that this plan will not work. So we really are sort of at the bottom, the low ebbs of public confidence in, in the government on this issue, I'd say. And if we look across more broadly around the topic of immigration, when we ask how well or badly are the government handling immigration right now, we see pretty much a mirror image of, of the figures that we've got there. 82% of people say they're handling the issue badly versus 10% who say they're handling it well. So it's an interesting political decision, interesting strategy for the government to shine so much light on an issue where the public do not think the government are doing well at all right now and they don't have any faith at all that their plan is going to come to fruition in the future. Okay, so the government, meanwhile, has made this big show of policies like sending migrants to Rwanda. Has that basically backfired? Was there more support before? What's happened? Mm. So I think it's been largely static. The British public were never confident that these, let's say, big set play showpiece policies would be that effective. So I think in terms of moving dials, I wouldn't say that they've gotten less popular. However, there has been a growing and growing and ever growing sense that the government are simply not handling this issue very well at all. So that is true. We've seen a, a, an increase, let's say, in the proportion of people in our trackers since the government have started wheeling out these policies, telling us that the government is handling the issue badly. So in that sense, yes, you could argue that it has backfired. The government have drawn attention, a lot of attention, to an issue where the public are not happy with the current policies and do not think that the current plans are going to make sense and so are increasingly likely to think that the issue is being handled badly. However, what I would say 
is that this is very much a it's not a short term plan from Sunak and from the government from Conservative Party strategists. What they're looking to do here is change the frames of the conversation away from economic issues, away from inflation, away from the fact that a lot of people simply do not have enough money in their pockets to pay bills going through their doors and toward other areas is where they feel more confident right now in, in terms of beating Labour. And that is, seeming at the minute, immigration, asylum and more cultural issues. However, right now, the polling doesn't really back them up there. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the issue of framing as well, because even within the broader issue of migration, the government is very keen to focus on this particular element of the asylum seekers that are crossing the English Channel, which is, of course, a very small part of the much broader picture and a much broader conversation about who has the right to come to this country and how they do it. Compared to at the time of, for example, the Brexit referendum, how important is the issue of migration to voters? It's a very good point. So at the moment, we're seeing immigration and asylum is a consistent, a pretty consistent third place in the most important issues tracking. It's around about just north of a third of the public tell us that that's one of their three most important issues facing Britain right now. It's, it's competing as it does most summers with environment and climate change for that third place spot. If we go back to 2016, that figure was much, much, much higher. And the issues around immigration and asylum and sort of wheeled into, I guess, or uh, harmonised with Brexit and Britain's membership of the European Union and immigration around those topics, that was the overall predominant dominating topic in the British minds at that time. Right now, it is certainly an issue. It's certainly up there in terms of the rankings, but it is below the economy and it's below health. Those are the two issues right now that really are capturing the public's attention. And it's no surprise, perhaps, with inflation stubbornly upwards toward that 10% mark, although better news on that has sort of been released earlier today, so we might see that change. But for now, it is is certainly playing third, second, third fiddle to the economy and health and not at the high points of around the Brexit referendum. Patrick, we've been talking a lot about election interference, about influence, uh, propaganda, uh, mis and disinformation on the programme today. You both track voters and also rely on them uh, to tell you what they think about issues. Do you think that companies like Cambridge Analytica and, and many, many others influence public opinion a bit in a big way is it something i'm sure that you as a pollster are thinking about these sorts of influence campaigns the influence of of internet social media yes i think there's there certainly has been a a big growth in voter targeting and the, the more sophistication in the ways that parties and campaign organizations will seek to understand target and segment and analyze voter and voter behavior and try to predict what they're doing and companies like cambridge analytica are, are one instance i think of a much broader network of quite advanced uh, technologically uh, based organizations and groups who are looking to utilize things like ai machine learning uh, predictive modeling to really get ahead of the curve, I guess, on where people are in terms of their opinions. And of course, one of the opinions that people hold and one of the ones that we talk most often about is their vote intention. So certainly it's something that we're always aware of. Certainly it's something that we know is happening. And we're quite excited, I think, about the, the future, perhaps, of where these technologies might take us in terms of giving the public access to very quickly to information that they might not otherwise have, such as perhaps MPs voting records, historical election results, information on tactical voting, 
we see a lot of these websites pop up sporadically in and around election time. And it could be the case that in future, uh, companies and organizations are able to offer AI or machine learning based solutions to that, which could provide voters with more information and help them make better informed decision. But of course, there's also perhaps the, shall we say, quote unquote, the darker side of this in terms of uh, what, what what could be what the public could be could be exposed to or what people on social media could be sent down in terms of rabbit holes and echo chambers, which we know do exist and do happen and, and can influence the way people behave and perceive world events. But certainly I think there's 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 room to be optimistic and excited about these emerging technologies as well. Okay, Patrick English, YouGov's Associate Director, thanks so much for joining us uh, with your insights on those various subjects. That is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by Jack Ryan and James Walcock and our audio engineer was Marufa Hussain and Max Green. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.